Hello and welcome to the Album of the Day show. I'm your host, Ian Hooper. And this show is a weekly roundup of the albums that I'm listening to Monday through Friday that are forced onto me by a website that takes from the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die by Robert Dimry. So a link to that website will be in the description so you can get your own list and try this out for yourself. And in addition to those five albums, I'm also going to highlight something that I'm listening to in between the five records that we'll get to at the very end. It's not anything that's on the list. It's just most likely a modern artist that I'm listening to that I really appreciate that I think should be highlighted and discussed more. It's a lot of fun. It's a nice challenge, an experiment, and it's helping to expose me to some music that I may have never heard before. Uh, But with that being said, I do have a few rules. So number one, I can't skip any of the albums that are suggested to me. Whatever's on the list that morning is what I got to listen to. Two, I can't skip any of the songs on those albums. And three, I have to listen all the way through the entire project at least once. So that means I'm listening to every single second of every single moment of this record. And with each record, I'll be going over my notes and my thoughts from the initial listen kind of breaking down the tracks as they were happening, what I liked or didn't like. I'll be talking about my favorite and least favorite tracks, be giving some background on the record, some trivia, including critical and commercial reception, and then I'll give it a rating out of 10. And believe me when I say that I am no expert, but everyone's a critic, and these are just my opinions or critiques. I mean, I haven't heard most of these records. In fact, I only heard one of them before this week, and I just find this fun to do. And if you like what you're about to hear, consider subscribing or rating, liking, sharing, whatever, because it helps me out and it gives me some validation from internet strangers that I so desperately crave. And links to my social media, as well as the email for the show, will be in the description if you want to reach out with comments, questions, or hate mail. And I also like to encourage some discussion about the record that I'll suggest outside of the five. I want to hear what you like about it, what you don't like about it, and what you listen to outside of that. Find it super interesting. So with all that out of the way, let's jump into it. Because on Monday, I listened to Credence, Clearwater, Revival's Cosmos Factory from 1970. Try to say that five times fast, for fuck's sake. I love CCR, honestly. I feel like for artists throughout the late 60s and 70s, you could really take two routes, historically speaking. You could go the Eagles route and pretend that everything's okay, Let's not think about Vietnam and this terrifying Cold War and all the serial killing. (laughs) Or you could go to the Hendrix and CCR route, and you can really make some badass protest songs that are very poignant and well thought out of the times. And that's not completely a shot against the Eagles. I do like some of their songs, but I know which route I prefer because it makes itself a part of culture in a very impactful and effective way. I mean, just think of how many movies that are set in this time period you've seen with Fortunate Son featured on the soundtrack. I mean, it's a classic for a reason. That tells you how embedded and conscious of the times that CCR truly was. But with that being said, there are a few things on this record that interested me, and a few that kind of put me off. So, let's go through the track listing. Cosmos Factory is 11 songs and 42 minutes long. The record opens with the track Ramble Tamble, which is a lengthy and very interesting song. The opening riff is super badass. The rhythm on this one is fantastic. I like the blues style throughout the verses. And the track is littered with fantastic musicianship. I mean, these guys can play. And I must say, the thing that I like least about this track is actually John Fogarty's vocals. It just didn't really do much for me. 
But I do like the jam part that starts around the two-minute mark. It's probably the best part of the track, honestly, because the band is so tight throughout that whole thing. And if I've learned anything from being in a band myself, it's that it's very difficult to fake a good jam. If it's not there, you know it instantly. But this one is tight, and it works great. When the band comes out of the jam after nearly three minutes, it's really cool, and I like that it introduces some new stuff. It's just a great, solid track to open with. It gives you a really nice introduction as to what CCR is capable of. The next song is Before You Accuse Me, and it is a great blues track, which will be the theme of the next three songs, because this one, along with the track Travelin' Band and Ubi Doobie, walk a very interesting line with me. One of my big criticisms from two weeks ago of the Small Faces' Ogden's Not Gone Flake is that they blatantly stole a Jimi Hendrix riff, uh, the song Foxy Lady. And I hate when a group just copies something without changing it enough. There is that saying that imitation is the highest form of flattery, and I think that there's a fine line between just outright ripping off someone else and paying homage or wearing your influences on your sleeve. These three tracks copy Chuck Berry, Bobby Day, and Little Richard, especially. Or, in the case of Before You Accuse Me, it aligns themselves in the same style of what CCR obviously likes as musicians. The stuff has been going on for a long time, and I don't agree with it or like it, but I do understand that it was a different time, and that it still goes on today. I mean, whatever is popular is just what's imitated for profit. These three tracks aren't bad, but that is my criticism of them. The next one after those three is Looking Out My Back Door, which is a great track that feels like CCR, finally has a great slide guitar, some solid vocal performances that sound a lot more comfortable and in John Fogarty's range. The solos throughout are fantastic. I love the bridge and how it's done, especially how the band kind of slows down and lets it breathe a bit. I love this track. It's very well structured, very well put together, and it kept me interested throughout the whole thing. The next one is Run Through the Jungle, which is another great track that feels like what the band's artistic vision is supposed to be. I love it right off the bat. It's dark and foreboding. It's got some great riffs and sounds going on. It's got some great drum playing and some good rhythm. Obviously great vocals. And it feels like it belongs in like True Detective or some other thriller mystery set in the bayou. I really dig the harmonica bit. That part really sticks out the most. The next track is Up Around the Bend, which is also great. It's got that opening riff that I think most people will recognize. Like after this, you know, take note of just playing that and you'll probably go, oh, I've heard that before. I love the vocals on this one, especially the harmonies on the choruses. It's so rock and roll and so impactful. Kind of hits you right in the chest, you know, when you hear that really pretty but kind of nasty harmony. It just, it feels different, you know? I love that. The guitar tones on this one are also super notable. It's just a catchy track overall. My Baby Left Me is After That, which is another blues track. But it has some nice things going that give it a personality. I really enjoyed the walking bass line at the beginning and the guitars there. And I really like that the vocals are a bit more relaxed. Who Will Stop the Rain is more of a ballad. I really like that one. Um, it's the only one that the album has that's more slowed and kind of country inspired and mostly acoustic. And I really like the choices that are made around the vocals in the chorus. There's some great production on the track and everything really sounds good in its own right. Next is I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which is a cover of one of my favorite songs of all time, with the most popular version being done by Marvin Gaye. CCR's version is pretty solid in its own way. It's lengthy at around 11 minutes, and most of that time is spent with the band jamming. I really like that, honestly. I like hearing John Fogarty trying out something else with his voice. He honestly has a great falsetto that I wish he used more often. You don't really ever hear him singing in that upper register, but when he does, it's actually really awesome. 
I do find some of his pronunciations funny. <laughs> he says the word heard and heard it through the grapevine is heard, heard it through the grapevine. And it's it just sounds funny. It's just kind of goofy. But the song is just so well written. And obviously they're using someone else's work, but it it does work in just about any style, even kind of Bayou rock blues. And there's even a version done by the punk band The Slits that's also super solid. Overall, it's a version of the song that does it some really good justice. I think it would make Marvin proud. Lastly, you get Long As I Can See the Light, which is another softer track, not quite as soft as Who Will Stop the Rain, but it works really well. I really like the electronic piano on this one. I like the saxophone solo, which is the first time a saxophone appears on the record, I think. And the recording of that is just, it's so crisp. I, I guess by this point, they had really figured out how to record those kind of jazzy instruments. And it sounds, it's the best sounding recording on the whole track, I think, on the whole album. Um, it's really well done overall, this song, and it's a really smart one to end the record on. My favorite tracks are probably Up Around the Bend, Run Through the Jungle, Looking Out My Back Door, and Ramble Tamble. I like those ones because they're kind of quintessential CCR. And I don't want to say that I don't enjoy any of the tracks, but I do think Ubi Doobie is far too similar to Rock and Robin and, and songs in that style. Uh, good golly, Miss Molly, think that. Traveling Band takes a little too much from Little Richard. That's all I'll say about that. So the background, some trivia on this. Cosmos Factory is the fifth record from CCR, released originally by their label Fantasy Records in July of 1970. And this one was by far the band's most popular album, hitting their greatest commercial success, bar none. The album's name comes from a warehouse in Berkeley where CCR rehearsed in their early days. The group explores a wide variety of styles, going into some early rock and roll and soul, R&B, and of course blues. It's also the first record to feature some lengthy jams from the group, which most critics actually reacted positively to. And on the record, and on the cover of the record, you see a handwritten sign that says Third Generation, which is a reference to a review written by music critic Ralph Gleason, who called CCR a part of the third generation of San Francisco bands, basically saying that they weren't nearly as good as the Grateful Dead. So they kind of took a stab back at them. Now, the lyrics of the album are varied, ranging from commentary on Vietnam, of course, to a little tribute to John Fogarty's son, which I think is pretty cute. Traveling Band was intended to be a tribute to Little Richard, which earned CCR a lawsuit on grounds of plagiarism for being too similar to Little Richard's song, Good Golly Miss Molly. And Good Golly Miss Molly was ironically covered by CCR the year before on the EP Bayou Country. And that lawsuit was eventually settled outside of court, so obviously they had a case against them. Now, CCR's success at this time was largely due to their avoidance of the tropes that psychedelic rock was starting to fall into at this time, becoming one of the most popular American bands in the entire world. And until this record, CCR was largely panned for being just merely a singles band. They never would have a cohesive effort as a group. Now, John Fogarty was involved heavily in the group and on the album. He produced the whole thing, he composed the majority of the tracks, and he painted the artistic vision for the record. John was also managing the group at the time, and that caused a serious rift among the members, which led to his own brother Tom quitting. John plays the lead guitar throughout, piano and keys, saxophone, harmonica, and he sings lead vocals on the group. I had no idea that John Fogarty had that much musical ability. It's kind of nuts. And he was backed by Tom, his brother, on rhythm guitar, Stu Cook on bass, and Doug Clifford on drums. And Tom and John weren't the only Fogarty's that were involved on the record, as their older brother Bob took the cover photo and designed the record's look. As for critical and commercial success, Cosmos Factory made a huge splash on global audiences. 
It hit number one on the U.S. Billboard's charts, as well as the Australian, Canadian, French, Norwegian, and U.K. charts. It was also number two in Italy and the Netherlands. And six of the 11 tracks on the record broke through the top 10 on the U.S. Hot 100 list. Since then, the record is certified four times platinum, selling four million copies. And critics also received the record very well, with the lowest rating that I could find being an 8.8 out of 10 from, of course, Pitchfork. (laughs) Now, for me, I would place this album right up there at an 8. I dig the feel of it. I heavily admire John Fogarty's talent and his vision. I think they're one of the best groups throughout this era in rock and roll. It's a great record. I just think it falls a little short in the originality department on those few tracks that I mentioned. Let's move on, because on Tuesday I listened to probably the most opposite album I can think of, which was The Prodigy's The Fat of the Land from 1997. I've never been a fan of electronic music, but I am open to it. Growing up, my brother was very into The Prodigy, and so I've actually heard a lot of the songs, especially from this album, since it's pretty much their best effort. After listening, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Some good and some bad. Disclaimer, this album will be exceptionally difficult to describe. It's electronic music. I don't really know how to describe it. It's like how people say Skrillex music just sounds like Transformers fucking. That's not as intense of a sentiment for the prodigy, but it is hard to describe. So all I can say is that I'm going to do my best. This one might go by quickly, so let's just go straight into notes. Now, The Fat of the Land is 10 songs and somehow 56 minutes long. That's almost an average of six minutes per track. Way too much. It's like fucking Metallica. Now, that is probably my main criticism of the record. Now, I understand that this is a club album. It's for dancing. It's for venues to just hit play and let all the people bump their sweaty bodies into each other for extended periods of time. What I'm saying is, it's a very different experience than just hearing it at a club while you're with all your friends on drugs, having a good time, Versus listening to it in headphones while sitting on your couch with a cup of coffee at 8.30 in the morning. So I will factor that experience for the sake of fairness. The record opens with the track Smack My Bitch Up, a track that I am all too familiar with due to its appearance in the ultimate sexual awakening movie of 2000, Charlie's Angels. Side note, Lucy Lou, if you ever hear this and your standards are abysmally low enough, hit me up. I actually really like this track. It has a great intro with some heavy bass and solid production, much like the rest of the album. And I do like the breakdown with those Middle Eastern-esque sounding vocals and all the weird stuff going on with the keys. I think the subject matter kind of sucks, though. I mean, this track got a lot of criticism from feminists and political activists, and that criticism is very well earned. You're talking about smacking women, smacking your bitch up. That's not great subject matter. I'm not going to cancel The Prodigy. It's just something that you shouldn't ignore, and I'm not going to ignore either. I think the track instrumentation is done well, but I don't like the subject. Now, following that track is Breathe, and I really like the main sample and the instrument or element or whatever that's going on there. I like the vocals a lot. I like the guitar sounds. It's got some more great production. I mean, the guys in The Prodigy very obviously know exactly what they're doing going into this record. I think my favorite part of the whole track are what sound like sword fight samples from a kung fu movie. And they're being used almost like symbols. It's a really cool thing. And it reminds me a lot of like Wu-Tang Clan, you know, um, Enter the 36 Chambers, how they have all those kung fu movies in the background. It's actually, actually cool. It kept me really interested. Diesel Power is the next track. That's another good one. I like the rhythm a lot. I like the rapping. But it did make me wish that there was more of that. I think this track shows you exactly what makes hip hop so special. And that even with the most simple of beats, you can make a song that is profoundly effective with some good performances and lyricism. That's the point where I really started to notice just how long these tracks go on for, though. 
This track is over four minutes, and you really get the gist of it in the first two. I don't think it needed to go longer than that, but it certainly does. After that is the track Funky Shit, which I do not like. It's just repetitive, more than anything before it. I think the synths are cool, but that's kind of the only redeeming factor. I do like that at the end of the track, it sounds like the song is sort of glitching or skipping, but then it uses that to transition into the next song, and a lot of what comes before that is just unnecessary, however. Um, Serial Thrilla is the next track. I like the simplicity on this one, I like the vocals, it's well put together. It feels like there are parts to it rather than one driving element the whole time. And it did feel like there was a natural ending around the 3 minute and 20 second mark, but they just bring it back in with what you've already heard, so it really drags after that point. Again, that's another big criticism. These songs are so long. They're so long. The song Minefields follows, and it's pretty cool. I like the main riff going on. I like the heavy 808s. It's super repetitive, though, so I didn't really latch onto it. I think those two sentences were all that I wrote in my notes. After that, you have the track Narayan, which is very interesting. It's very cool. I like the vocals on it. The laser sounds uh, that the synths are making are really interesting. I like the ethereal sounds on the vocals closer to the end. It is the longest track over nine minutes, and it definitely suffers from doing too little over and over and over and over and over again. Firestarter is a cool track. It's got some pretty creepy and effective instrumental stuff going on. I think everybody knows that song. I like the vocals on this one the most. They really kind of tie the track together, and they keep you interested. Climbatize is After, which has a really long but kind of cool intro. After that, the track does a lot to keep interest and add some new elements. It did kind of start to lose my interest at the end there, especially when it kept repeating the hook and took out the drums and bass for some reason. It's just like, now we're just playing with the same few things we got going on. Fuel My Fire is the closer, and I don't love it. It's very corny. Especially the hook and that cheesy organ sound, it's just not my thing. My favorite tracks are probably Firestarter, uh, Breathe. Those are probably the only ones I can really think of that I would listen to again. My least favorites are Fuel My Fire, Minefields, and Funky Shit. So let's go straight into trivia. The Fat of the Land is the third album from The Prodigy, which was released in June of 1997 by XL Recordings. The group itself is made up of the members Liam Hallett, who played keyboards, synths, and programming, and he's also the primary producer and engineer. Maxim Reality and Keith Flint lend their talents to vocals, and Cool Keith is the vocalist that lends his fantastic talent to diesel power. For the album's Japanese release, there were two bonus tracks, one of which is called No Man Army, and that features guitar from Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. I like that. Now, before this record, Keith Flint hadn't appeared in the group, but here he is featured on four of the tracks, two of which were the biggest hits that the album had. This record felt serious controversy due to the song Smack My Bitch Up, like we mentioned, and that one was heavily criticized by the National Organization for Women due to its misogynistic premise, something I totally understand. I'm not sure what the band was thinking in their defense, because Liam Hallett said the true meaning of the song is, quote, doing anything intensely. The Beastie Boys even asked the Prodigy not to play the song when they opened for the Beastie Boys at the Reading Festival, but the Prodigy did anyway, saying, quote, we do whatever the fuck we want, close quote. I don't like that. <laughs> I like punk bands. I like defying authority, but when a group that you're opening for asks you not to play a highly controversial or misogynistic song, maybe you just take the L and say, yeah, we'll do that. Don't be assholes about that one. 
The record did exceptionally well, breaking records for the fastest-selling UK album of all time, and has been featured on multiple Best of the 90s lists, receiving positive reviews ranging from 7 out of 10 and above. Interestingly enough, Pitchfork did a Redux review in 2018, dropping its score from a 7.9 at release all the way down to a 5.9. Now here's some peak positions for the charts. Fat of the Land peaked at number one on the Australian, Dutch, Finnish, German, New Zealand, Norwegian, Scottish, Spanish, Swedish, Swiss, UK, and US charts. Number two on the French and Belgian, and the record has been certified at least once platinum in Australia, Belgium, Canada, Finland, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Spain, Sweden, the UK, and the US, and it has since sold over 10 million copies worldwide. Now what I find most interesting about this record is the historical context of it, right? I can't see electronic music being nearly as culturally relevant without this album. I don't see Dead Mouse or Calvin Harris or really any of that existing as prevalent as it has in the mainstream without this to pave the way for it. Do I love it? No. Do I see how important it is in the modern music landscape? Absolutely. And for that reason, I look at this in a slightly brighter light because of how groundbreaking it was and, frankly, is. All the songs have interesting things in them, and if I was a 20-something-year-old in Britain during the late 90s, I'd probably be in a club on some sort of cocktail of party drugs, dancing and sweating my ass off surrounded by glow sticks and neon. That being said, I'm not British, or living in the late 90s, and nobody's going to clubs or bars right now, so I'm giving it a 7 out of 10. On Wednesday, I listened to Nirvana's In Utero from 1993. Now here we are. We're finally talking about some Nirvana. I've been mentioning how much grunge I used to listen to when I was a kid, and name-dropping Nirvana every single time I'd bring that up. And now we get to talk about some Nirvana. Sadly enough, we're not talking about my favorite Nirvana record, which probably makes me super basic and uh, discredits me as a reviewer or as a critic or whatever because Nevermind is just so commercial. No, Nevermind is just good and to the point. I've heard this album a few times, but admittedly, I really only listened to a few tracks off of it outside of those few times. Mostly Penny Royalty, Dumb, All Apologies, and Heart Shaped Box occasionally. Now, there's still some of my favorite Nirvana tracks. Going into this with some more seasoned ears did help me out a bit and gave me some new insight. So let's go straight into the notes. In Utero is 12 songs and 41 minutes long. The record opens with the track Serve the Servants, which kicks things off real well. It's one of the less dark tracks in the whole effort, being a little more rock-leaning than grunge. It's a bit more catchy than you'd expect, really, and though I don't love the chorus, I do dig the thing overall. You notice pretty quickly that the record is very well produced, and I like the guitar solo because it reminds me of the Stooges, which I know frontman Kurt Cobain was influenced by. Following that is Scentless Apprentice, which I don't love. It's much darker right off the bat, and even though I do like the opening drum beat and the bass as well as some of the screaming, I just don't really click with it. Heart-shaped boxes after that, and that's one track I'm sure many people will recognize, and I never really loved this one before, but I gotta say that on this most recent listen, I really dig it. Kurt's performance is fantastic on this one, as well as the rest of the group. The post-chorus is probably the best part of the whole track. I mean, you can really hear that there's a reason this one was so popular. I really, really enjoyed this track more than I ever had before. Now... Trigger warning here for a conversation about sexual abuse. I will have future Ian give you a timestamp and some additional time to skip. Go ahead and skip to 25 minutes and 10 seconds. Rape Me is next, which I just don't like. It's incredibly dark, obviously, and almost unnecessarily so. 
The instrumentation and the performances are good. And apparently the track is more about raising awareness and being blunt in its support of feminism and its anti-abuse message, hoping to turn it back on people. But I, I just don't think it's necessary. This is something I ran into recently as well with a TV show. I've been watching a lot of The Sopranos, which is utterly fantastic, but there is a graphic rape scene in one of the episodes, which I completely hated. I hated it. I understand that this is a real thing happening to people every day, but to show that so graphically and in-depth is ridiculous. You can do more by implying your message, and you also don't alienate your audience at the same time. I get the intent, but I don't appreciate the method. I have a lot of friends in my life that have experienced sexual abuse. I would never want to expose them to something like that. And frankly, I don't want to play this song ever for my own sake or their sake. Now, Nirvana themselves have done better things in implying their message in a more subtle way themselves. On the track Polly, it's about similar topics, and it's more poignant and it's much more impactful, in my opinion, especially in its presentation. Anyway, let's just move on from that. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Um, Frances Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle is a great track that follows. I love the guitars on there. I really like the vocal melody in the chorus, and I absolutely love the bridge. The composition of this track is probably some of the best on the whole album. After that is Dumb, which is a beautiful track with some great strings on there, this lazy kind of disjointed guitar that sounds like it's in a daze of itself. That works really well for the track. I like that a lot. Very Ape is another good track. I like the rhythm of this one and that eerie lead guitar thing going on. The chorus progression is creepy and effective. It's just a very cool track overall. I really dig sort of the abrupt ending as well. It just kind of stops. I, I, I like that a lot. Milk It is next. It's got a creepy intro. It's got some cool main chord progression stuff going on, but I don't really like the vocals on the verses. The choruses do a lot to hold the track up, or attempt to, but the verses and the bridge especially bog it down a whole lot. Penny Royal T is after that, which has a great intro. I really like the use of the acoustics a lot in the verses. The harmonies on that are fantastic, and there's another great guitar solo. I really, really like that one. Radio-friendly Unit Shifter has a cool opening. I like all the feedback kind of squealing in the track. The main chord progression is great on this. It's very punk-infused. There's a great bridge, but I do feel like the track sort of starts to drag toward the end. There's what feels like a big build-up toward it that doesn't really do anything afterward. Tourette's is far more of a punk track. I do love the guitars, the drums, and the bass, but the vocals don't really do a whole lot for me. I think it's got some good instrumentation, but I think Kurt's performance just falls a little short. All Apologies closes the record, which is the best track on the whole thing. I There's a reason that this track did so well. I think the um, acoustic version for MTV Unplugged or whatever was... It's such a solid version of this track because it's just good at its core. Um, there's some beautiful use of strings on there. Great vocal performances with some really tight production. The drumming is great, and I love that fuzzy guitar playing the verse riff on the bridge in the outro. It's just a beautiful song, top to bottom. My favorite tracks from In Utero are definitely All Apologies, obviously. I love Heart Shaped Box, I love Francis Farmer, and I love Serve the Servants. My least favorites are probably Milk It, Tourette's, and Scentless Apprentice. So let's get into trivia before we close it out. In Utero is the third and final record from Nirvana following Kurt's death. The record itself was released on September of 1993 by the label DGC Records, and the group was looking to have In Utero be a much less polished and much less tight as Nevermind. 
which they accomplished. Probably not in fully positive ways, though, in my opinion. The cover of the record showcases some more strikingly medical imagery, something that Kurt did intentionally to commentate on his outlook of Nirvana's newfound fame and success and how publicized their lives were becoming. That was something that would ultimately lead to a suicide. Now, there were rumors soon after in utero's completion that DGC wasn't going to release it, doubting its commercial potential. And the group denied the rumors vehemently, though they did have some remixing done of a few tracks, including Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies by Scott Litt, who was the producer for R.E.M. And following Nevermind, the group debated back and forth on who should produce the follow-up. They recorded demos with multiple producers throughout Seattle, Brazil, and Rio de Janeiro, recording instrumental tracks they called Gallons of Rubbing Alcohol Flow Through the Strip and I'll Take You Down to the Pavement. The latter was a reference to an argument that Kurt had with Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses at the 1992 VMAs. The group finally settled on recording with Steve Albini, who was someone that was known for his highly opinionated and principled approach to music. Kurt chose him because he produced the album Surfer Rosa by the Pixies and Pod by the Breeders, which were some of Kurt's favorites. Now, Steve Albini had a very different perspective. He's a very interesting guy. I find him fascinating. He actually decided to work with Nirvana out of pity, saying that he saw the members as, quote, the same sort of people as all the small fry bands I deal with, close quote, believing them to be under the boot of their record label. Albini had previously called Nirvana R.E.M. with a fuzz box and an unremarkable version of the Seattle sound. So he had shit on them previously and they still wanted to work with him. Guess that's just a testament to how good he is. Now the whole record was recorded at Pachyderm Studios in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. The band stayed in a house on the grounds where the studio was located and they were surrounded constantly by snow, which made bassist Chris Novoselic compare the conditions to that of a gulag, which... Probably isn't remotely true. It was probably just boring. <laughs> now, when the group arrived, they came without their gear, and they had to wait for it to show up in the mail three days later. So it was probably very boring. The drums were recorded with around 30 microphones, lending to their massive sound, and Kurt apparently recorded every single vocal track in just six hours. And after just six days, the entire record was complete. Mixing was complete in the five after that, and when Albini would get frustrated from lacking mixes and he wasn't really getting into his workflow, he would just have the band and himself take the entire day off to watch nature movies, light things on fire, and make prank calls. Now, Albini was paranoid before the sessions, believing that DGC would interfere with their creative direction, so he urged Nirvana to front studio costs themselves, ultimately paying $124,000 for the sessions. And he was so adamant on avoiding any sort of label interference that he ignored anybody that wasn't the three members of Nirvana. Now, Albini was urged by Nirvana's management company to take royalty rights, but he refused and lost around half a million dollars in result because he wanted as much of that money as possible to go to the band. He was a very interesting guy. I, I find his approach a little strange, a little paranoid, a little maybe unrealistic, but he obviously was highly principled, like Nirvana said. Now, critical reception to In Utero was completely favorable with most outlets rewarding 5 out of 5 stars and the lowest that I could find being an 8 out of 10. The record peaked at number 1 on the US Billboard charts, the UK album charts, and the Swedish album charts. It's since been certified 5 times platinum in the US and sold over 7 million records. Now personally, I guess I prefer what most critics consider to be that more commercial or mainstream sound that's present on Nevermind, their record before this. 
I still think In Utero has some great tracks and does a lot of interesting things, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite release of Nirvana's, let alone of the 90s. I would put this at a comfortable 8 out of 10, right alongside Cosmos Factory. It's, it's a good record. I, I really enjoyed it. I would listen to it again. Now on Thursday, I listened to Nick Drake's Five Leaves Left. Who the hell is Nick Drake? I definitely had no idea before I listened to this album, but god damn it, I am sad that I didn't before Thursday. I really like folk music, and I really like old country. I'm not talking that stadium country bullshit like Garth Brooks. I'm talking about Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash, James Taylor, Neil Young. I could go on and on and on. These names are some of the greatest songwriters in history. And honestly, I put Nick Drake right up there with the others after listening to this. Let me explain my reasons why and talk about the brilliance and ultimate tragedy of this artistic genius. Five Leaves Left is 10 songs and 41 minutes long. The record opens with the track Time Has Told Me, which is a nice folk opener. It's very pretty. Right off the bat, I love Nick Drake's voice. It's kind of hard to describe. It's got a sort of nasal but also throaty quality to it. It isn't raspy or anything, but it's very unique and very beautiful. I love the slide guitars that are peppered in there because right away you know that this album is very well produced and mixed. Following that is Riverman, which is just a total favorite. It's beautiful again. It's super well produced. I love the guitar sound and the upright bass serving as a backbone for the track. It's very sorrowful, especially during the verse. When the strings come in, I wasn't really expecting them, so it felt like a gut punch. I love this track. It's great. Three Hours is next. And I love the guitar mixing and sound again. I love the bongos that kind of fill in this sort of world percussion sound thing going on. I love the bass in there. I really like this track, and I feel like it would work just as well in a cowboy movie as it would in a fantasy movie. The guitar playing and the musicianship is great, and I love the vocal performances. Both of those things are done by Nick. Way Too Blue is next which opens with these beautiful strings, those same ones from before, and the vocal melody is just hauntingly beautiful. And I love the way that the guitar just kind of sits in this one. It's very well composed. Way Too Blue is next, which opens with these beautiful strings. The vocal melody is haunting, and I love that the guitar sits this one out. It's just very well composed, and it lets the other instruments do their thing, kind of have Nick's voice take center stage. Following that track is Day Is Done, which brings the guitar back alongside those amazing strings. The melody is, again, beautiful, and it reminds me of a sort of more upbeat Stairway to Heaven. It's almost like Nick is singing over a classical music track. Cello Song is next. I love the percussion there. I love the energy in the guitar playing. I love the cello carrying the melody there throughout the beginning. I mean, it blows my mind how accurate Nick Dreg's pitch is because he sings that same cello melody later in the track. He's got such insane talent, and I love the ending where the cello kind of does its own thing, sort of trails off and does all this pretty improvisation as all the tracks beside the percussion just fade themselves out. And the cello throughout that whole time has this beautiful natural reverb on it. It's just so impactful and effective. The Thoughts of Mary Jane follows, which is just more of the same stuff, but I love that same stuff. It's a little brighter and happier than the other tracks, but it's got more fantastic vocal performances, more fantastic musicianship, production, composition, whatever. It's just great. Man in the Shed is after that, which is stunning. I was totally invested in the piano playing right away. That jazzy walking bass line, that guitar playing, and that somewhat sporadic 
methodical vocal style that Nick has on this track. The next song, Fruit Tree, is a gorgeous and another sad and contemplative one that has beautiful instrumentation and composition. The last one is Saturday Sun, which is a wonderful piano back track with some drums making the very first appearance on the record. I dig the marimba in there, and you really hear that Nick has some of the best vocals on the whole effort here. It's more optimistic sounding, it's a little more jazz infused, it's just plain lovely music. Overall, I think my favorite tracks would be Three Hours, Day Is Done, River Man, Cello Song, Saturday Sun, and Time Has Told Me. That's nearly half of all the tracks, and I really didn't dislike anything I heard. I think this album is an amazing, sometimes haunting experience. It's so different from most folk in the late 60s. It's honest, and it's real, it's effective in the way it presents itself. Now I want to get into trivia before I rate this because there are some very interesting things going on with Nick and this album. Nick Drake was an English folk musician and singer, and in his time, he really failed to find an audience for his music. But over time, his work has garnered the recognition that it really deserved, though he never really got to see it because of his untimely death in 1974 at just age 26. Now, he signed to the Island Records label at 20 years old while he was attending Cambridge, and he began work on his debut album, Five Leaves Left, almost immediately after. And Nick was a very quiet, reserved, and immensely shy person. He avoided interviews, photo ops, and live performances as often as he could. I mean, there's not even any existing footage of Nick as an adult. The only images we have of him are photographs of him as a grown-up or home movies from his childhood. And Nick dealt with depression his entire life, something that is talked about often in his lyrics. And after the release of his third record, Pink Moon, in 1972, he stopped playing live altogether, returned to his parents' home in a rural English town, and passed away of an overdose less than two years later. It's unknown still to this day whether his death was accidental or suicide. Now, Nick Drake was cited as an inspiration for The Cure, R.E.M., Kate Bush, Paul Weller, The Black Crows, and a lot of others. And that surge of artist recognition finally gave his work some commercial success. But upon release, none of Drake's records ever surpassed just 5,000 sales. Five Leaves Left was recorded over nearly a year at Sound Techniques Studio in London. The producer John Wood later mentioned that Drake would sit in front of the strings during recordings and track his vocals and guitar playing at the same time while all the other instruments were playing live. Robert Kirby, who was a childhood friend of Drake, helped arrange the strings, and Nick would record all of his vocals live, never overdubbing anything he did. He would often sit on a stool surrounded by the other instruments and just get it right the first time. The title of the record is a reference to the Rizla cigarette brand, who had a note inside their packs reading, Only Five Leaves Left. Now, when the record was released, its reviews were mixed, with most critics dismissing it. And it wasn't until the 1990s that Nick Drake's work began receiving attention, and a remastered version in 2000 prompted new reviews, with just about every outlet awarding perfect scores. John Harris of Q wrote the record was a, quote, hesitant, slightly troubled soul, peering at the straight world and wondering what will become of him and the people he beholds. I couldn't find any sales records for this album, so it probably hasn't broken gold. This is one of the best folk albums I've ever heard, and you need to give it a listen for yourself. It is moving, gorgeous, deeply compelling music done by an immensely talented individual who I didn't even know before Thursday, but I genuinely sorely miss him. I wish I could go and watch YouTube performances of him. I wish I could go and see 
some interviews with him where he talks about his process. And I want to link something in this episode. So I'm going to put a link for a performance from an amazing musician that I love on YouTube. His name is Josh Turner. He does a cover of one of Nick Drake's later tracks, which is called Pink Moon. Go listen to it. Go listen to this record. And if you struggle with any of the feelings that Nick dealt with in his own life, I urge you to go and seek the help that you need. Therapy and medication, all those things can do so much for you. I know myself. I'm in therapy. I've been on medication. And I know that there have been times where I felt like I was completely alone in the world. And it can be a very, very tragic and very difficult feeling to tango with. I just want to urge you not to ever try and tangle with that alone. This record is a 9.5 out of 10. It's near perfect. I think it's beautiful. Now on Friday, let's bring up the energy a little bit. I listened to Le Tigre's album Le Tigre from 1999. Now I'm not super familiar with this group, but I did know I recognized something about them in that the lead singer Kathleen Hanna was also part of the group Bikini Kill, who did the song Rebel Girl. That's really where my familiarity with the group ends, but I do love this style of punk and rock and pop music, and I love Kathleen's voice, so I will say I was really into this album. Let's get into the notes. The Tigre is 12 tracks and 34 minutes long. It consists of strange dream pop, pop punk, and electronic music centered around feminism and left-wing politics. The record opens with the track Decepticon, which immediately gives a glimpse into just how weird this album is. It's awesome, and it's got some... Fantastic sounds by way of these synthy guitar tracks, some driving bass, and drum machines used for all the percussion. The vocal performances are great, Kathleen shrieking and really giving a taste of the angst and the energy of this record. Following that opening is Hot Topic, which has a great backbone in that bass line. It's got some strange samples going on throughout that lend to the atmosphere, some great drum sounds going on, and I really like the frantic and colliding lyrics at the beginning. There's a really cool moment at the end where all the members in the band are just sort of shouting names. I heard Sleater Kinney, The Slits, Joan Jett, so you know that they name drop their influences right away. But you also hear some weirder names that are just meant to be funny, like um, Vaginal Cream Davis. The next track is What's Your Take on Cassiavetti's? And I really like the program drums on this one. I really like the fuzzed out guitar. And I like the back and forth bit with the vocals where they ask, what's your take on Cassiavetti's? And one side says misogynist and the other one says genius. And then again, one side says alcoholic and the other one says messiah. There's just some really cool ideas and concepts going on that really pulled me into the track. It's not as straightforward as punk music generally is, and I really like that. The The Empty follows and has some great riffs smothered with distortion, some really frantic lyricism and weird drums throughout. I've been watching a lot of Pen15 on Hulu. If you haven't seen that show yet, you should definitely check it out. I mention that because the main character, Maya, sounds a lot like Kathleen does here at times in the show. Uh, it was just kind of funny. It kind of gave me that image. Um, the song Fanta is next and has some very great vocals, as usual. It's got some strange effects on the guitar sounds and a really catchy chorus. It's structured well and does a lot for the feel of it. And after that is Eau de Bathroom Dancing. I don't do French. French is a made-up language. Please don't judge me for that one. Um, but that track has some more great guitar sounds. It's got a growling bass, some uncomfortable vocal performances that sound really disjointed and manic. It's got a very eerie sound overall. It's very effective at what it's going for, and it keeps things fresh. Next is Let's Run, which pushes more on the angsty, youthful, pseudo-punk vibe that just works on this record. The strongest part of the whole track is definitely the vocal performances. 
My My Metro Card is another great track with some more fantastic vocals, some interesting organ sounds, and a great composition that really kept me very interested. It's also got some very poignant political commentary. Now, I mentioned last week that punk music has this sort of ability to talk about current issues of the time that it's released, and society has this ability of never really doing much changing so that those lyrics are still true years later. There's a bit where the group showcases that, in which one of the members says, Giuliani, and the rest of the group says, he sucks. And that's still true, years later. It's really art. Friendship Station is another solid track with a great main beat, some awesome samples and weird guitar riffs. I like the production choices here, especially how the vocals sort of revolve around your head, and I really dig the processing of them. Slideshow at Free University is the lone instrumental track of the record, and it's supported by some great samples in there a great bass line, and some more cool-sounding program drums. It's very atmospheric, and it's very solid. Dude, You're So Crazy is next, which showcases some more great guitar sounds, very interesting percussion samples. I love the marimba going on there, and the track is built up really nicely pretty much right away. I dig the vocals. They're very spaced out and trance-like there. Finally, you get Les and Ray, which is the closer, and is much creepier than the rest of the tracks. It's got this very happy sound at first glance, but a lot of the instrumentation is almost unsettling. I like that the vocals kind of keep things happy and sort of whimsical, but then the instruments have this sort of creepy sound going on. I like the detuned piano in there. It's got this sort of broken feel to it. It kind of lends to that unsettling nature of the track. It's just a very strong note to end on. I really dig this record. I think it does some weird things very well, and that's kind of what I'm a sucker for. I mention all the time that weird doesn't automatically equal good, but when weird is done well, it's fantastic. It's vastly different from anything else that I listened to this week, but it totally stands on its own. My favorite tracks are definitely My My MetroCard, Friendship Station, Dude You're So Crazy, Hot Topic, and Decepticon. I can't say I dislike any of it. Now let's get into trivia before we close out, because there isn't much. La Tigre was an electronic pop-punk group consisting of Kathleen Hanna, Johanna Fateman, and Sadie Benning. They were formed in 1998 in New York. And La Tigre is, of course, their self-titled debut record, which was released in October of 1999 by Mr. Lady Records. Mr. Lady was a label that was known for its feminist and LGBT-focused music. The group was originally supposed to be the live band for Kathleen Hanna's alter ego, Julia Ruin, but they instead started making music of their own and decided to go in that direction. Le Tigre used mostly inexpensive gear that they were unfamiliar with as a challenge to themselves as well as to show, quote, girl punk scorn for that particular strain of male expertise associated with electronic music, close quote. All of the drum sounds heard on the record are programmed on an Alesis HR-16B drum machine. The lyrics are obviously politically charged with commentary and criticism targeting the likes of Rudy Giuliani and John Cassivetes, as well as praising political activists fighting for equality. Now, the album was very well received by critics and fans, receiving mostly A's, with the lowest review I could find being a 4 out of 5. I couldn't find any certifications or sales records, so just assume they probably didn't break gold at the 500,000 sales. It was actually a pretty low-selling week this week. Personally, I would give this record a solid 9 out of 10. I enjoyed it a lot, I thought it had some great messages in there, and it really subverted my expectations as a punk or pop-punk record. With that being said, I don't think it really changed my life or anything. It's not the best thing I've ever heard, and it didn't really emotionally affect me like Five Leaves Left did, but I did enjoy the hell out of it. And this is where things sort of get to tough, because the other nines are Halcyon Digest, Boston, The Clash, and Channel Orange, so let's call it more of a light nine, rounding out underneath the other ones. 
Now, let's touch on what I was listening to outside of those five records, because I was also playing the wonderful record from another amazing folk and country singer, Cut Worms. And his record, Nobody Lives Here Anymore, is some of the best country music I have ever heard. And country is experiencing something of a resurgence in its quality as of late. Artists like Orville Peck and Yola are going back to their roots and improving on the formula to create some beautiful and sonically fantastic material. And I put Cutworms right up there with them. He's got a wonderful voice, sort of reminiscent of a James Taylor or Buddy Holly love child sprinkled with some Neil Young. And he knows 100% how to write and compose a song, just like those other three. And Nobody Lives Here Anymore came out just last year in 2020. It was one of my favorite releases of that entire year. Cut Worms is the stage name of Max Clark, an Ohio-born and Brooklyn-living artist quietly making some deeply profound and gorgeous music. The record itself was recorded in Memphis and is a lengthy double album, sitting over an hour of material and 17 tracks. The record is shrouded in reverb, making the whole thing nostalgic and bittersweet, backed by its instrumentation and performances, as well as its subject matter. The whole experience is like driving through Ghost Town, familiar, warm, and a little bit sad. And although Cutworms invokes a certain style, set in a certain decade, done by certain artists, Nobody Lives Here Anymore stands entirely on its own and is well worth a listen. So go check it out and let me know what you think. I'm going to link a live performance of his for you to check out. And I highly suggest you go and listen to the tracks The Heat Is On, A Natural Disaster, Last Words to a Refugee, Looks Like Rain, Veterans Day, Sold My Soul, Castle in the Clouds, God Bless the Day, and Cave of Phantoms. Those are all fantastic tracks. Overall, it's a really, really good record. Well, that's pretty much all I have today. Um, we talked about some really great music. It was great to, you know, go and listen to some vastly different material. It was a much better week than last week was. And, um, I just want to say if you made it to the end and you enjoyed what you heard, thank you. Um, I appreciate whatever support you give. Um, I know I say to like and share and rate and subscribe and whatever, but honestly, just the fact that you stuck it out with me and gave this whole thing a chance is more than enough for me. So thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope I see you in the next one. Um, I highly encourage you to go and check out those links I put in the description. And I highly encourage you to go and get your own list and try this out for yourself. It's been a very eye-opening experience that I'm going to keep doing regardless of if this podcast continues. So that's all I have. See you next time.